what is it about this quality of my partner that I'm struggling with? What does it remind me of? What do I worry about with this quality? So it is oftentimes our own, the thing that's driving us crazy is highlighting something inside of us that's warranting our uh, attention. I know you are doing the best that you can right now. Your relationships matter to you. You are important. And yet over time, we get stuck. We get lost or we stop showing up as our true self. We get hung up on the stories we tell ourselves, the comparisons, or feeling like we are not good enough. I'm Not Your Shrink is a podcast aimed at helping you feel connected to yourself, to others, and to live a life that is in line with what matters most to you. I'm Dr. Tracy Dalgleish, clinical psychologist and couples therapist. I bring you clinical knowledge and evidence-based research, experiences of sitting in the therapist chair and being a wife and mother to talk about everyday issues we all face to help you change the dialogue in your life. Let's dive in. I'm so glad you clicked play and decided to join me for today's episode because I think everyone is going to be able to take away something from today's conversation, whether it's about making the step for you to change or to talk to your partner about couples therapy or even what it means to find a therapist. Now, before I go further, I need to explain my scratchy voice. And as you know, it's always my preference to show up authentically here with you. And I asked my producer and director for more time before recording this introduction. We are four weeks post book launch and one week post audible book launch, by the way, if you prefer audio formats of books. My book is now available and I narrate it with my normal healthy voice. But there's just something so real about acknowledging the push to produce something. And in a later episode, I'm going to, once my voice is better, I'm going to break down all of the book experience and show up with you authentically. And I want to do that because I think for so many of us, we see these really pretty images on social where things have come together and our brain doesn't do the calculation of how somebody actually got there. So how I am here today with this scratchy voice is that first, I don't think anybody should release a book when kids go back to school. And yet it's one of the most popular publishing times because it's inevitable that we get sick. And my body has said, Tracy, it's too much. And I've got the kids cold and I haven't been able to kick it. And my body has said, rest, rest, rest. And I know you've gotten to know me over the years that we have listened podcasts together. And I'm not good at resting. I'm being forced to rest during this season. So here I am with a scratchy voice. I have delayed this intro as long as possible because I want to do justice to today's guest, but we're just going to plow forward and you're going to bear with me. And I am certain that when today's guest and I sat down together to record, my voice did not sound this scratchy. So thank you for bearing with me. 
I have been a longtime fan of today's guest, so sitting together is such a gift. This individual is doing powerful work in the world of relationships, of building strong connections, and in the world of couples therapy. I'm often confronted with these really powerful, thought-provoking messages on my Instagram feed when her posts show up, and as a lifelong learner and curious individual, I deeply appreciate all that she offers us through the books that she has written on relational self-awareness. So our conversation today, I think, is just a very real one of talking about the real experiences as therapists, often the misunderstandings that show up for people around couples therapy, and also the information that we need when it comes to developing a strong relationship with our therapists. Today, I'm sitting with Dr. Alexandra Solomon. She is one of the most trusted voices in the world of relationships, and her work on relational self-awareness has reached millions of people around the world. Dr. Solomon is a licensed clinical psychologist at the Family Institute at Northwestern University, and she is on faculty in the School of Education and Social Policy of Northwestern University, where she teaches the internationally renowned course, Building Loving and Lasting Relationships, Marriage 101. In addition to writing articles and chapters for leading academic journals and books in the field of marriage and family, she is the author of two best-selling books, Loving Bravely and Taking Sexy Back. Dr. Solomon regularly presents to diverse groups that include the United States Military Academy at West Point and Microsoft, and she is frequently asked to talk about relationships with media outlets like the Today Show, O Magazine, The Atlantic, Vogue, and Scientific American. She's the host of the weekly podcast, Reimagining Love, and her new book, Love Every Day, is officially available for you to order. I'm holding her book and this is such a powerful piece to learn more about you, about your relationship in these really digestible bite-sized pieces, because you and I both know this, just how busy we all are. And yet our relationships need us to nurture and learn to turn towards each other. All right, let's go into today's conversation. Hi, Dr. Tracy. Hi, Dr. Alexandra. I am beyond thrilled to be sitting with you today and having this conversation. And especially because I'm holding your beautiful book here in my hands. It is stunning. And for people who don't have it already, make sure you go and pick it up. It is fantastic. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be sitting with you because you and I are publishing house sisters. We are. You just published your first book, which I have sitting here with me. Your new book is called I Didn't Sign Up for This. A couples therapist shares real life stories of breaking patterns and finding joy in relationships, dot, 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 including her own. It's so beautiful, Tracy. You've done such an incredible job with it. And I can't wait to hear all about your journey and what it's like to have your book out in the world. So we're here as publishing sisters. We both publish our books through PESI, which is a really just a wonderful publishing company that is so deeply invested in mental health and relationship health and um, just a, a really thoughtful 
like kind of walk the talk kind of a publishing company. And so it's, I'm, I'm happy to have that bond with you. And we, I, we all, we both end, offered endorsements of each other's books and I just am, am here to celebrate. I, I echo the same words. The team has been fantastic to work with and to be able to see how they've brought our work to, to life. The cover designs are beautiful. The connections with the editors and the marketing team, they've been fantastic to work with. So it is such a gift to be able to, to do this work alongside you. And also, I know that this is not your first book. And you have just been such a fantastic contributor to the world of building relationships, building what you call relational self-awareness. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That's, that's been, um, yeah, the through line in, in all of the work that I've been doing for the last 20 plus years. And I, I, I love that. I mean, I feel like there's, I hope that there's many, many more books in me because I know that writing these books helps me continue the work that I want to do as a partner, as a parent, as a friend, as a family member, and um, and professionally as well. I think that there's there's no shortage of need for books like ours because intimate partnerships especially are difficult. And that is what we're going to explore today is that for as rewarding and fulfilling and important as intimate partnership is, it is incredibly activating and challenging and messy. And we need to have, I mean, I'm, my husband and I just celebrated our 25 year anniversary and I still need to be surrounded by resources that help me remember, you know, the partner that I want to be in this marriage. Mm, I love that you've shared that because it is such a truth in who we are as humans first, and then also the work that we do in the sense of how difficult relationships really are when you bring two people together with different histories and different early childhood experiences and how complex it can be to co-create your worlds together over a lifetime, over the long term, and just how much our relationships can change, not just after we have children, but also with the day-to-day stresses that we experience. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. Support for today's episode comes from ZocDoc. We all know there are things in life we have to compromise on, like the right way to load a dishwasher or whether those socks are going to stay on the floor for a week. Okay, in all seriousness, but when it comes to your mental health, there is no compromise. So we don't need to go back to that one therapist or one physician who didn't align with what we need just because they're available right now. We don't need to compromise on the care we need for our overall wellness. Instead, this is where ZocDoc comes in. This is a place where you can find and book hundreds of types of doctors, including therapists, psychologists, and psychiatrists. And you can find someone who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your well-being. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare hundreds of types of patient-reviewed in-network doctors, including mental health providers, and instantly book appointments with them online. You can search by location, availability, and insurance. Go to ZocDoc.com com slash I-N-Y-S and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top rated doctor today. If I needed this app, this is one that I would be going to. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C.com slash I-N-Y-S and get the care that you need today. 
Support for today's episode comes from Cozy Earth. You know I am all about caring for ourselves, especially in these busy years with our young kids. We are pulled in so many directions, but I think it's so important for us to find ways to nurture ourselves that require no additional time from us. I should probably let you in on one of my favorite things to do to look after me, and that is to get a good night's sleep on amazing sheets. I am beyond thrilled to bring you Cozy Earth's luxurious bedding products with an exclusive Mother's Day offer just for my listeners. We've got a code. It's SHRINK, S-H-R-I-N-K, for 35% off at CozyEarth.com. Now, I didn't believe it until I tried them, but I firmly stand by my sleep improving with the temperature regulating technology, which adapts to your body's needs. For the past year, I have not slept on any other brand of sheets. Cozy Earth uses the very best fabrics, materials, and wares, offering superior softness for you to sink into at the end of those long days. I look forward to getting into bed, and we've been loving the sheets for over a year and their sleepwear is so unbelievably soft and it's made with such great quality. But the best part is that if you're worried about commitment, enjoy a 100 night sleep trial and a 10 year warranty on all of your purchases. Head over to CozyEarth.com and use promo code SHRINK for an exclusive 35% off and give the luxury she deserves with Cozy Earth. Support for today's episode comes from Loop Earplugs. For so long after having children, I kept wondering why I was easily overwhelmed and felt like an angry mom. The noise from the kids, the dog barking, and the sounds around me from everyday life. But I now understand that I'm not an angry mom, and instead, my nervous system gets overwhelmed and overstimulated, which is why I've been turning more and more to my loop earplugs to help me stay more regulated and engaged with the family. I'm using loop engage to help dampen the sound around me. And these loop earplugs allow me to still be with every beat and conversation. I still hear Greg. I can still hear the kids. I love that they are so comfortable and they come with eight silicone ear tips to ensure the right fit for you. The best part for me is that I take them everywhere with me. They are proving the test of time and not to mention they're stylish in my ears. Plus, we love the kids versions, which we've been able to take to the movies for our kids. I'm so excited that Loop Earplugs is offering you, my community, a discount so that you too can tackle that overstimulation while still being engaged with the activities and people you love. Visit loopearplugs.com and use my code Loop times Dr. Tracy for 10% off your order. That's L-O-O-P-X-D-R-T-R-A-C-Y for 10% off your order. Okay, so we're having this conversation and it's going to become an episode of your podcast and it will become an episode of my podcast. And so for people who are listening, who are reimagining love listeners who don't know you and your work and your book, will you tell us a little bit about, I didn't sign up for this because I, I think my favorite part is that the way that you've constructed this book allows you to be a very gentle teacher because you are first and foremost a storyteller. You tell us the story of four couples, one of which is you and your husband, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. Four couples total. And it's in the story that you're offering us an immense amount of insight into both the world of couples therapy and the world of relationships. So tell us a little bit about why you chose 
this format and what the journey was like to use storytelling as your vehicle for teaching. Mm. This book has been such a labor of love. And I know you can say that about your <laughs> your journey as well with your books. I wanted people to read a book where they saw themselves in the stories. And I often found myself sitting in front of clients thinking, I wish you could see the client that was here just before you. Not in a way to minimize or dismiss their struggles, but in a way to show up with compassion and common humanity to say you are not alone in what you are experiencing. And you and I both know just how much shame people carry with them around the relationship struggles that they have. And I kept hearing the same message from people. I must be the only one struggling with this. Or there's something wrong with me that I'm feeling resentful towards my partner or that we can't work through this conflict that continues to show up. And so when I thought of what, what would I want to communicate with others, I wanted them to be able to see the everyday struggles that couples have. And as I started to unfold those struggles through story, I also found and was deeply reminded of my own struggles that I lived day to day as well. That was parallel to what my clients were experiencing. And I say in the book, I've been a human a lot longer than I've been a therapist. And <laughs> one of the things I know you and I have both seen throughout our careers is just how much therapy is changing and also how the therapist changes in terms of showing up. That quite early on in our training, we've been told, don't let other people see anything about you. Don't let your clients know things about you. And that's different than the self-disclosures that are used appropriately with clients in the therapy room. And what we're seeing is the opening of what therapists are talking about on social media. And that's not to say in therapy I'm having a, oh, yes, let me tell you about the morning I had with my kids moment. That's not what that is. But it, it is a way of saying, yes, experts are experts with my air quotes. We are also human. And it is one thing to sit in front of a client in our objectivity, in our distance, with our training, with our experience that we've had, our knowledge, and then to go home and to struggle with the same very thing. We take our hats off. Right. That's right. As I wrote the book, it felt like I was building a wall if I left my stories out of it. And that wall almost was to say, I'm not like you. I don't experience those yeah. struggles. And yet I know the most powerful thing that has shown up with my own clients is when they have seen me as human, when they can say, oh, Dr. Tracy, you experience this too. It's not just me, which led to the reason to include some of my story in the book as well. I think it's such, it is an incredibly exciting time to be doing this work. And you're right, it is so different than how I was trained and that, and also how probably the early role models that I had who did, you know, a lot of this public facing work that you and I so value. I think there has been an evolution in how we get to show up and can show up. And it's, I think I spent a lot of time talking with young therapists and therapists in training and emerging in our field. And I think it's 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 actually um, quite a responsibility for somebody who's coming into their career to right. figure out where 
those boundaries are and how to become really skilled at the art and science of therapy while also attempting to build a brand or find a niche or, you know, figure out like what do you share and what do you not share. And I um, really, really encourage emerging clinicians to give themselves lots and lots of time that you have a long, God willing, you have a really long career and becoming a therapist, becoming a couples therapist, especially is incredibly difficult. And there's so much to be learned and so much repetition that you need to have to gain those skills and to just give people, I want especially emerging clinicians to just give themselves lots of time to figure that out because it is hard. And I, I would love for you to speak a little bit to a listener about kind of like a little bit of education about therapy in terms of um, how a therapist might use self-disclosure during a session with you and then what might be some kind of problems or things that, you know, where a, where a client might be like, oh, this is not feeling like a great self-disclosure. So can you get like, let's talk about like, what are some of those like lines of when, you know, kind of rules of thumb around when and how we as therapists might use self-disclosure versus you just have a therapist who really has no sense of this. And the therapist is using too much of your time to talk about, you know, themselves. Mm. I, I do think there is a sense of distance between it's a different kind of relationship that you have. So many, many clients will say, you know, I wish I knew more about you or, you know, there are these yeah. parts that I, I know this is a different type of relationship. So for the listener, you will have a different type of relationship with your therapist. It is a one sided relationship. And at the same time, though, you do want to build a sense of trust and security and comfort with that person to share and open up with what's happening in your life. If there are moments where your therapist says something and you feel it doesn't center around you and the the struggles that you're having, or it feels a little bit too much like it's about them, that might be something that you start to question. Or even at the same time, I'm I advocate I really strongly encourage people to bring up those you and I would use the word ruptures, the moments where that feels uncomfortable with your therapist to be able to say, you know, I'm not too sure what led you to share that or that doesn't really feel good for me, right? That this is you practicing in the therapy room with the therapist to be able to set your boundaries and let them know. So that that is something for the listener to keep in mind in terms of where your agency is in the therapy room. Um where to find that boundary there each client is going to be different so when i'm in my therapist chair i can ask myself what is my reason for sharing this right now is this coming from something inside of me or is it about helping the client to move forward in their own journey and the work that they're doing and if it's something inside of me as a therapist that is not something that i'm going to share something that i'm going to make a mark of, come back to later, do some self-reflective process or consultation or do my own work. In the therapy room, though, if there is something that the client is struggling with, it's often around shame, but it really does depend on who the yeah. client is, right? Um, there's very much the interpersonal piece of of working with shame and being able to then say, um, to normalize and to humanize their experience. But the goal of that self-disclosure is always to help the client move forward rather than it being about me in some way. Mm -hmm. That's a really, that's, you've said a couple of really, really important things I want to put a big spotlight on. One is I really want listeners who are also clients to know that feedback of your, like giving your therapist feedback is vital 
it is appropriate. It doesn't mean that you are right and your therapist is wrong because we don't, we really try to not bring that right, wrong framework Mm -hmm. into a therapy relationship, but it is a therapy relationship. And so your therapist has been trained in how to work with feedback and how to sit with you, like almost go shoulder to shoulder, the two of you, and look at the rupture, look at that moment and run it through a couple of lenses because you as a client might have had a reaction to what your therapist said based on your stuff, the stuff that you bring in. Your therapist in that moment was reminding you of your mother or of your ex or of your older sister, whatever it is. And so your reactivity in that moment is shaped by your prior experiences and or your reaction in that moment might be that your therapist, right, is just a human. And, you know, she's a little hungry. She's a little overwrought. She's having a hard time remembering what's mine, what's yours. And so she, in a moment, you know, said more than what was helpful or said something in a way that was more like a discharge of her experience mm-hmm. rather than something that really is useful. And then if that happened, she might still be a really wonderful clinician for you. She might just need to make a repair. And the two of you might need to make a repair. And what the research has shown us is those empathic ruptures, when they are repaired, end up making for an even stronger therapeutic alliance. And that's true in all of our relationships, friendships Mm -hmm. that go through, you know, a little wrinkle that gets smoothed over, that friendship deepens. And that's also true of a relationship with a therapist. When my clients take the risk of bringing me something or saying, if a couple comes to me and says, Alexander, we really felt like last week you were siding so much with me and not my partner or this didn't land for us. It is sacred. I mean, I have my own Alexander reaction because I don't want to be a disappointment. I want to do right by my clients, but it's so sacred. I get how brave it is to bring this up with your therapist. And I want to meet that moment in a way that we can really use it. So that's, I think that's the the point that you made about feedback and the value of feedback is, is just like spot on. I could not agree with that more. Let's add the piece to it as well, is that like all relationships, we are constantly gathering information about the other person and checking things out and testing things. And again, then getting more information and revising our scripts and how we understand other people, how your therapist responds to you sharing feedback is also another piece of big information. As you just said, Alexandra, that you, that feedback is sacred to you. You can see that it's, you know, there's some Alexandra stuff in that moment. Um, that you will that you deal with that on your own, but yet that feedback is so sacred, and it should be. And we we want our clients to come to us and give us that, so that we can work through it and do that repair. If you give feedback to your therapist and you feel like you get even more stuck, and it's maybe they're defensive, or they don't take in that feedback, or they don't process it with you, or maybe you feel dismissed in some way. Again, we're not saying they have to agree with you, but there's a space of yeah processing and working through that again that's more information about is this the right therapist for me do i need to work through that a little bit more or yeah do you see what i'm saying i wanted to really reflect that piece there i do because that is right we can say that your therapist has been trained to know how to work with feedback but it doesn't mean that your therapist you know that that may not that, that your therapist maybe didn't get trained in that or is, you know, is really blocked in that way. And Mm -hmm. um, I think that is, I mean, I, I just as 
you know, relationships are intimate relationships are at will arrangements. A therapeutic relationship is an at will arrangement. And certainly a client can set a therapist up to hear feedback by being measured, by choosing words carefully, by not coming in with like a you're a terrible therapist Mm -hmm. or you ruined my life. You know, I think there's ways we can set our therapist up well to hear us. But you're right. A therapist who becomes defensive or punitive or shuts down, um, if they aren't able to come back and repair that, right, it's it's too much to ask a client to be like carrying the weight. Because as you said in the beginning, it's, it's a one-sided relationship. Yes. You are not on equal ground. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. The other part was about making sure that what your therapist self-discloses is tied to your situation. And that so often, I think you're like, when I think about the times I have self-disclosed with my clients, it often is about like that kind of attempting to soften the edges of shame by saying, I get that I've been there, you know, that, that it is a, it's a reach yeah, it's a reach across um, that bridge to say, you know, you are not the first or only person to have that experience. So it's mm-hmm. an attempt to kind of connect around that. But you're right. It's the therapist's responsibility to make this not now become about me and my story. It's me sharing this in the service of helping you, client, stay in this difficult conversation. Mm-hmm. Mm. Circling back to the work that we're doing today it's it's so interesting to be on social media to be sharing podcasts with our partners as well um because then quite different from what we were trained in our clients have the potential to know things about us that they wouldn't necessarily before and i can even remember having this conversation with a colleague who got engaged and decided to not and actually did end up getting married during our residency and decided not to to wear her rings because that was kind of that that sense of that boundary between her and her clients and the information that she wanted to share. And then it's so interesting because then you and I have this other layer at times with clients who come in saying, I've read your book or I follow right. you on social media or right. And so there's this other layer. And I, I think that is also something for listeners as clients to be aware of is um, having that sense of separation from your therapist of wanting to not build narratives outside of that. And I always encourage my clients not to follow me on social media. One, because I can't ensure their privacy um, because I have a team of people. Um, But two, also just to create a little bit of that barrier, that separation, so that I remain that objective outside person rather than perhaps any projections that come up, which kind of comes from both sides. Because I'm curious if you've had this experience, but I did have a client who had watched my stories one day on Instagram and saw myself share a really hard parenting moment. And it was a client who actually had built a lot of walls in our therapeutic relationship. And then afterwards came into session saying, I saw your stories. I now see that you are human and you're struggling with the same things as me. And that tore down her walls. Uh in the therapy Uh room, which was such such an interesting experience. 
Yeah. That's really wonderful. Yeah. But I, I hear what you're saying about it. it needs to be kind of a case by case basis or even like a moment by like sort of a chapter of a therapy relationship versus a chapter of a therapy relationship. And I think that, yeah, I think that that's and, and again, I think if you if your therapist is somebody who has a social media following and you're following their work and you have a reaction to something they've shared that becomes grist for the mill. You can bring that to therapy and say, when you shared this reel about whatever, a conflict with your partner Mm -hmm. or a parenting moment, I had a reaction to it. Wonderful. Let's talk about it. Like, let's use, you know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's all grist for the mill. That's exactly what I had said to a colleague last night as we were having dinner together. So it's so funny. I I have to note one of the things you said in your book, and I want to hear what led you to this beautiful piece of work that I know I'm going to recommend to so many clients. I'm holding your book, Love Every Day. I would love to hear the process of how you decided to write it in this format. But I wanted to first say, Alexandra, that you are probably the first person's work that I have come across who has cited Iyanla Venzin's work. I love her. I've loved her for so many years. Are you a fan as well? Yes. And it it was so interesting because I know that the book that I read in the meantime was a book that helped me through one of my biggest struggles in my earlier years through, through a relationship breakup, actually. I, um, you know, I think in part it's because my best friend is a shaman. So I, you know, and she's always been an incredibly spiritually gifted gal and we've been best friends since we were 10 years old. And so I am as comfortable on, you know, Northwestern University's database as I am sitting with spiritual texts mm. and my, you know, um, my deck of cards, my, um, you know, spiritual guidance cards that I use. And so that whole world of spiritual teachers have been of such tremendous value to me. Like I certainly love my mentors and heroes within our field, mm-hmm. the field of mental health, mm-hmm. the field of relationship health. But I know darn well that my own healing journey and who I am and how I show up for the writing and teaching that I do has been incredibly enhanced by folks who occupy more of that spiritual realm, like Yanla does to me. She's more, she's more one of those spiritual teachers and kind of wisdom carriers. And, um, and I know that I'm stronger for being able to kind of work comfortably in both those worlds, the world of science and the world of, of spirit. Mm, I love that. I so appreciate that about the work that you offer us as well. Okay. Tell us about the book. So I have always, I've always loved a one a day format. So right, I've written two books that are more traditional chapter books. I have loved those. I love the books where you really do need to read them start to finish and and the book takes you on a journey. I have such immense like value and respect for those, that format, but I've always loved a one a day. I think it's because it just feels, I don't, I think it just like fits that part of my brain that loves order. Everything goes in little, you know, kind of like little boxes and a little sequence and you get kind of a little bit each day. It's like a, like the um, advent calendar, like something where you just get like little morsels each time. So that, that has always really suited my like personality and constitution. And so then just based on a whole backstory, we don't need to go into, Pessy and I decided to partner together around a book in this format. And it was so much fun to create, to take, you know, I've had this um, really robust Instagram feed for many years now where I'm on almost every day figuring out what is a little offering? What's a little, where do we turn the kaleidoscope and kind of pause 
and deepen into this one, you know, domain. And Instagram posts are so ephemeral. They're there and they're gone. And I get so many DMs each week, as I'm sure you do, from people who are like, remember the one you did a couple weeks ago? You know, like, or maybe they didn't need it then, but they sure as hell need it now, you know, and it's gone, right? Like it's somewhere in the feed, <laughs> but Lord knows how you're going to find it. And so there just was like, there was this idea of how, how might we capture really a collection of these. And so it's not a one-to-one transfer of Instagram to this book, but there certainly is for people who really know my feed, they'll be like, oh, now I have this collection and I can refer and reference. And we, um, we, we categorize the, the entries in different ways. So maybe on, you know, October 10th, you love that entry and it speaks to you and you can work with it and or bring it to your partner. But if it's not, if that one is not speaking to you and you need something that's more around self-compassion, we've categorized them all and there's different color coding. And so you can just flip to that color Mm. and read that entry and work with that. So it really was a, it's a really fun format. I think it's a format that frankly parallels intimate relationships where it's about the little stuff, you know, it's not intimate relationships are healed, not by the one declaration or the sweeping, you know, effort. It's about the little micro shifts and changes and tweaks and efforts that each partner makes on a daily basis. Which is so true for our experience with couples in our room. Don't you think that we are not making, yeah. and I think that's the the piece that you and I are, are aware of is that when couples come in, they have had all of these moments build and build and build until they've tried everything possible. And then they're coming to you. And that was the first thing they told us on our, of our training in our PhD was remember your clients show up having done everything possible before they come to your therapy room, which was more true in 2006 than what it is today. We're seeing that shift in terms of the narrative and how we understand um, therapy. But in it, what that really reminds us is your relationship didn't get here through one, necessarily one big moment. Mm. Sometimes there's a marker. Right. Um, and so it's not going to change or evolve or grow also just by one big moment. I, I want to highlight one of the days because it it was so beautiful. And for those who have the book, it's May 31st. And you said to love someone requires us to wrestle with acceptance and that we constantly struggle, you say, with the tension of acceptance and the reality that change is hard. And you encourage us to look at shedding and expanding. I would love if you could just speak briefly to that because it's it's that one day nugget that was so big. May 31st, if you have the book, <laughs> that's the day. But I'd love to hear hear a bit more about that. Yeah. I think that there's all kinds of reasons that we struggle with acceptance of of a truth about our partner, of a trait of our partner, of a quality, you know, it feels like settling. And I think that there's, I think, especially for those of us who pride ourselves on being ambitious, of being unafraid of hard work, of rolling up our sleeves and doing hard things, it can feel like acceptance is like a shoulder shrug and a give up. And I think what's difficult is that when we have identified something about our partner that is driving us crazy, oftentimes the things that we're doing to try to get them to see it and get them to be different become as offensive or safety eroding or connection eroding as the thing itself, right? And we forget that sometimes that, that sometimes it is by 
allowing our partner to be that way and seeing how we might move with that or reposition ourselves that actually creates change. It is acceptance of something in somebody else can be an opening for change. I think there's very few of us who want to change because somebody has, you know, kind of pointed it out and pointed it out and pointed it out. And so there's always like another angle of like, what is it about this quality of my partner that I'm struggling with? What does it remind me of? What do I worry about with this quality? So it is oftentimes our own, the thing that's driving us crazy is highlighting something inside of us that's warranting our uh, attention. Hmm. Yes, the, there's that self-reflective piece. See, what is it inside of me about this piece? Mm-hmm. What's happening for me? And we know that. It, it's even the, the principle in what we do with people in therapy is we know that if you tell someone to do something, they will go and do the opposite. We as humans don't mm-hmm. like to be told something. So I, I love that practice of being able to see what is this about ourselves? Can we allow yeah. this as a way of growing and moving forward? Because one of the biggest questions that I often get is, what if my partner isn't doing this work? Mm-hmm. What? How do you respond to that question? It's the question that I got. I couldn't believe how many times that was the question that I got when my first book came out is like, I'm here for it. I'm here for relational self-awareness. And for you, it probably is. I'm here for looking at our relationship. I'm here for couples therapy. What if my partner is not? Tell me some of the, some of the places that you kind of guide people around how to sit with that really painful, um, you know, sense of like this, my partner doesn't get it. My partner isn't, you know, isn't as emotionally aware or invested in this as I am. I love to go into what that would mean for them. What would it mean if your partner were on the same page with you? What would it mean about you in the sense of how you understand that and what it would give you? And so if we can sit with that and explore it, we can then start to see what the need is in there and what is something that we can start then giving to ourselves. Because if we keep looking outward to someone who isn't able to give it to us, well, again, we get stuck in that loop. If you could just, if you just did more of this, if you were just more like this, we're going to get stuck. We're not allowing, we're not accepting. So can we then go inwards and ask ourselves, if my partner were doing this with me, what does it mean about me? What is it going to give me? And can I, can I actually allow space to grieve this here, to grieve this loss that I had hoped for a partner to mirror back this to me and they're not able to. It doesn't mean there's necessarily something defective and I need to end our relationship right away. It doesn't necessarily mean that, but it does indicate, what can I start giving myself through this process? I like to remind people that you are doing this because you are here and that you, at the end of the day, you have the agency within yourself to say, how do I want to show up in a life that's meaningful for me. If we're looking to the other person, that's not looking inward to ourselves. So when I put my head on the pillow at the end of the day, can I say I acted in alignment with who I am and with what is the most meaningful parts to me, knowing that I don't get to control or make someone else change? Yeah, yeah beautiful. The strength, you know, and the strength of the strength of the longing in an intimate relationship speaks to the strength of the bond. It speaks to the ways in which intimate partnership has the power to uniquely activate our own unfinished business, Mm, our own wounds from the past, especially from family of origin. Mm -hmm. And so what you're doing by inviting people to look at what is this, what is this need, this craving, this longing that you want your partner to give you 
it is so it is so powerful because very likely that is something that started long before your partner got here. And I I think we that idealized idea of if we have a good relationship, I won't hurt, I won't yearn, I won't mm. long. We come by that not just because of the power of the relationship, but we come by that because that's how we're socialized, right? We're taught, you know, through Disney movies and rom-coms and, you know, all of this, that we, this is how it ought to be. And if you have to source your, your contentment from lots of people and lots of relationships and lots of self-practices and somehow you are settling in your relationship. Hmm. What would you add to that if someone were saying the same thing? I think this question is one that I get almost all the time from um, women who date men or women who partner with men is very often, I think that is, um, may I hope that in my lifetime, we get to a place where I've got as many men complaining about, you know, female partners who are not as relationally self-aware, but so far we're not, the tide hasn't changed. We know you and I know from publishing books that the vast majority of people who buy, I didn't sign up for this are going to be those who've been socialized as women. And, you know, same with my books. And I'm so grateful when it is a male partner, no matter who the gender of his partner, when a male partner has, you know, initiated a, a couples therapy call or has picked up a book. Like, I think that is such a wonderful subversion of all of what he's been taught, you know, because he's been taught to whatever, not cry, not talk about feelings, equate emotions with neediness and all of that. So I think that when it is a woman, especially who's dating a man, I think there is like we do need to be expecting more and like tr like helping to continue to shift all of this uh, socialization that we do of boys and men, while also knowing that it is very often the love of a woman that takes a man into his own work. That doesn't mean she's responsible for it. Doesn't mean that she needs to be you know, in charge of it for him. But it may really be that it is in the context of him loving her that he is putting language to this for the first time. And so I think there's a difference between a partner who is, uh, you know, making an effort but clunky as hell and a partner who has got their arms crossed and holds self-reflection in contempt. So I think I would add that part to it. Mm. Yeah, how important that is to recognize that it's, is, is there someone in there who is maybe not getting it, but is trying and continues to hold values within the relationship, right? We're talking about respect and trust, um, but then versus the other partner who is not in there, who is contemptuous, who yeah. is shut down and refusing. And that's really hard to look at it uh, as well. Yeah. What do you think are, I think we've, we've made a lot of progress around destigmatizing therapy in general, but to me, it seems like we have a long ways to go towards uh, reducing stigma on couples therapy mm -hmm. in particular. I think mm -hmm. your book is going to be an essential part in terms of like peeling, like pulling back the curtain and really normalizing couples therapy. But what do you think are some of the common misperceptions of couples therapy that may keep people from being willing to give it a try. I think this is a really important one to call out, especially given, um, is, is it fair to say this today? I'm curious what you think. Are, we, we were not always a profession that was predominantly women, if we go back to Freud's time. But now yeah. my sense is that we are a majority women in this profession, I think maybe is fair to say. hundred percent. Yes, right? Yes. When I 
Or just looking at one program, which is the marriage and family therapy program at Northwestern, it is definitely many more female identifying folks than male. For sure. Right. So so that I think is one of the first problems that we need to address because when it comes to the heterosexual relationship, commonly men say, I don't want to be ganged up on by you and my wife. And that is such a, a misperception of therapy that I'm there to find who's right or wrong or sides of an argument. And actually, it's one of the first things that I always say is, is there are going to be multiple truths. And our work here is to be able to build skills and tools for that, under, to, to, to be able to get to that place of understanding mm -hmm. each other and then to solve our problems. We're, we're not taking sides here. And again, you used the analogy earlier, um, which is what I offer my couples is we're shoulder to shoulder in this, looking at the problem in front of us so that uh -huh. it's not a who's the bad person in this dynamic. And so much of that work, too, is being able to reframe what's happening between them as there's a dynamic between you. Let's put the dynamic in front of you. And that's something that we want to change. So it's not this isn't going to be a blame game and I won't let it let it be right. become that. So I think that's the first biggest one that really comes to mind. What do you think? What's yeah. a common misperception that people have around couples therapy? I think that definitely is, I think that's a huge one, is is a deep fear of being blamed or ganged up on. I mm -hmm. think that is exactly, uh, that's exactly right. I think another fear, I think that there, I think it's the stigma, the idea that if we, if we need this, we're doomed, mm, that yes. it feels like it's a poor prognostic indicator. And so I think especially, especially if I'm working with a couple that's fairly early on in their relationship, they're getting ready to move in together, they're engaged, they're newly married. Um, I think that that heaviness and that shame can be even greater. And so I am explicit right out the gate that it is, it, to me, is a sign of strength and a reflection of the depth of their investment that they are doing this as early as they are. And um, we know that we, one of the entries in the book is like, we all bring baggage into our relationship. Mm -hmm. It is the brave among mm -hmm. us who are willing to open up the bags and look at it. And it is, it is so much easier to, um, so much easier to kind of create shifts and change with a couple who's, who's gotten lost in this pattern for a shorter amount of time than a couple where they're years or decades in, which does not mean that a couple who is years and decades in ought not go to therapy. We change is always possible, mm -hmm. uh, I believe, but it certainly is. I mean, I, I we take I take a dose based approach to therapy of doing a dose of therapy, stepping away, doing another dose of therapy. I've been practicing now for so long that I have couples like that where they'll come in for a bit step away. I'll hear from them again down the road. They'll step away. And so I really like that framing mm, for mm -hmm. a couple of, this is actually a resource that we will pick up and put down throughout the course of our relationship, whether that's a normative transition that's kicking our butts, like moving in together or having a baby, or whether there's something extraordinary mm, going mm -hmm. on. There's been, you know, a, a fight they can't see through or a loss of a job or a health crisis. I think there's, you know, but to, to really see it as a reflection of investment and something that, that works, like the data is really clear that couples therapy does work. And actually the things that couples are working on tend to, in fact, not remit on their own. Yeah. Gosh. I I know that. I know that 
individual therapy is still something that people talk about now as my therapist said, or I'm yeah. off to therapy and wait till I tell my therapist about this. And that's fantastic. <laughs> and yet rarely. And, and again, this was the motivating part of the book as well, is to open the dialogue around relationship challenges. That's not to say we're going to be at the park while the kids are going down the slide and airing all of our dirty laundry out in that kind of sense, right? But it is a sense to normalize saying, yeah, our relationship really changed once they started that job or once we had that our, our child. And, you know, it's been hard for us to connect. And for whether it's the the dads where, you know, I had this conversation on a podcast recently where he said um, the couple that I was sitting with, he had said, well, yeah, I don't I don't show that vulnerability with my fellow male friends. And wouldn't it be so powerful to be able to actually open up that door to remove the shame around changes and struggles in our relationship? And then the same goes for. For moms, but people in general, just to be able to say, yeah, things have not been so great. It's actually been hard. And for someone to say, yeah. I get it. We've been there. Us too. Or we're in, yeah, uh -huh. us too. So, so mm -hmm. that piece around couples therapy, I think is still really challenging where it's more accepting to go to individual therapy. But if we're going to couples therapy, then there must be something fundamentally flawed in our relationship. And yet I love how you frame that in the sense of especially going earlier, we can discover things about us that we don't know. And it's like, it's like the oil in my car. I don't know how to change the oil in my car. I don't know how to deal with the check engine light and nor am I going to read all of these books and then be able to open the hood and know where all of the things are. And so I'm going to go to the specialist for that, who is going to have the training and the knowledge and skills to help me work through my check engine light. And that's the same for our relationship. Ugh. And it's just such a, I was reading a um, chapter in the handbook of couples therapy recently. Uh, it was a chapter about um, common factors, like sort of what, you know, these, these researchers who have looked kind of across all the different models. So a listener, um, there's, there's a lot of different models of couples therapy. There's emotion focused therapy, there's Gottman therapy, there's uh, integrative behavioral couples therapy. There's, you know, a number of different approaches. And then there's been some researchers who've looked across all those different models and looked at sort of what are the common factors. And one of the big common factors is that idea of the three of you building a team, you know, and that feeling in this, the writer of this chapter was saying that he ran into a couple of his years later and they started to have a conversation about the work they had done. And the couple said, I think the biggest thing you did to help us was you just believed in us. You helped us remember that we're more than our problems. And there is like a marriage, a marriage is a heavy thing, you know? And so to have somebody in there with you who cares, like who's invested and who can help both of you remember that you are more than your problems and that there is, you know, goodness here and there is health here. Because when we're in, especially a relationship problem, like the problem itself is hard, but the fear about the problem, what does this say about us? Where is it going to go from here? Are we, is this going to break us? And especially for those of us who grew up in divorced families, we've seen that a problem can break a relationship. So to have somebody in the trenches with you who can kind of keep their head above water is just invaluable. Some of the stories that stand out for me from my clients include ones where a therapist made a judgment about their relationship and that 
I, I always like to take that step back and say that nobody can tell you where your relationship is going to go. I don't have a, a crystal ball. I can't tell you that. It's all going to depend on each day, each moment, each choice that you make. And we had circled back earlier. Um, you and I had talked about what what does it look like for a therapist to make a self-disclosure, what's appropriate or not. Yeah. And, and that would be something to to look out for if your therapist is making a judgment about mm-hmm. your relationship. It's not for us to be able to know and truly, I, I don't know every moment of what happens in a relationship. We get a slice of it in therapy. So I love how you frame that in the sense of we are working through this together. When would it be best for someone to consider individual therapy instead of couples therapy or maybe even alongside couples? Yeah, I was wanting to ask. I was wanting to get into this as well, because I think, some you know, at at the the model that the program the family institute where i taught for many many years you know we have our general approach is if one person calls for therapy and wants to do individual therapy but the therapist gets a pretty clear sense early on that this is a relationship problem we really do train our therapists because we're training people who who can work with a relationship to just bring the couple in and i do think that there's like i remember this is a research finding that's probably 20 years old now that was if a woman has a depression diagnosis and there's an amount of relationship conflict, actually couples therapy is going to be more effective at helping her with her depression than individual Mm -hmm. therapy is going to be. Mm -hmm. So I really do want people to err on the side of couples therapy, even if it scares them. I know that it's not always possible. And if you have a partner who, you know, will not go, I think then starting individual therapy is helpful. But I spend a lot of my time educating and training therapists to make sure that they're thinking relationally, even when they're working with one client. But I think what, one of the risks of individual therapy is if you're my individual, if I'm your individual therapist and you're talking to me about your husband, you're my client. I'm in your corner. I adore you. And so I'm going to, there's a risk that I'm going to be sort of, you know, consciously, unconsciously really, you know, boosting you and and diminishing um, your husband's perspective, you mm-hmm. know? And so I think that is, if somebody is going to do individual therapy instead of couples therapy, I do want that therapist to be um, practicing what one of the founding fathers of family therapy, Naj, called multilateral partiality, like really thinking about, okay, so Tracy is telling the story how would her husband tell the story if he was here? Mm-hmm. That's really, really re- important for an individual therapist. And so then you as an individual client can help your therapist do that by not simply dumping to your therapist about what a schmuck your partner is. Like really saying, let's make sure that we're talking about my part in this and what I did, my role in it. So I think that's, I think those are some of like the risks and pitfalls of bringing relationship content to individual therapy. I can't remember the the numbers now, but I think it, it in recent articles I was researching on, it was 60 to 70%, I think, of individual clients showing up with relational problems. And huge. it's huge. And, and yeah. of course, I, I say to my clients, you know, we don't live in silos. We live in the context of our relationship. But then it comes back to, and, and listeners can think of this, um, 
in the sense of how have I approached this conversation with my partner? Is it a heat of the moment when we're escalated and you say, we need couples therapy or you need to find a couples therapist. And, and that of course doesn't invite the togetherness of entering into a safe space. It, It really says you're the problem. And so you need to try to find a way to fix it. But oftentimes, even in that individual work that I do with clients, we'll talk about how are you having this conversation with your partner? How have you shared the concerns with Mm -hmm. them and how therapy as a couple might move you forward rather than it coming out in the heat of the moment? It's really challenging because I know some people are not willing, wanting or ready to do that work. Yeah. Yeah. And so then in that situation, you would still want somebody to do their own individual therapy if their partner isn't mm-hmm. ready or available for couples therapy, right? You would want them to be, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. still getting getting themselves support. And as you're saying, um, kind of care, like even like in that individual therapy space, making sure that that you and your individual therapist are considering your partner's perspective, which is... I think, you know, I think it can be a blend. I think there can be like a little bit of a pity party, you know, and then, okay, let's figure out how we're going to think about this in a little bit more mm-hmm. of a of a broad sense. Um, okay, but we didn't get to the part that you were asking about, which was individual therapy alongside couples therapy. And I, I have lots of cases, you know, this is definitely something that people need to have the time and the financial resources for, but I really do love when it's possible and when it is called for to have two individual therapists and then one couples therapist. And there can, there can be times when that is a really, that that's a really lovely way of working. And I think it's incumbent on the couples therapist to kind of coordinate mm-hmm. that team yeah. and to ensure that everybody is rowing in the same direction. So I do a lot of that coordination of care and not ever as much as I would like to be able to do because time is limited, but I want to have a sense of what's happening. If I'm the couples therapist, which is usually the way that it goes, I want to make sure that my clients have given me permission if they're comfortable to talk with their individual therapist. And when I'm talking to the individual therapist and sort of reporting in on, you know, how this is looking in couples therapy and making sure that I understand from their perspective. But that's a very, I think that's a very um, powerful way to do some work because there are some things, especially things that have to do with past trauma um, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. like earlier trauma, family of origin dynamics that are well suited for individual therapy. And then the couples therapy space is a bit, you know, is more, is able to be more reserved for working on relationship dynamics. Yeah, that that is um, such a great piece to recognize. It's It's challenging for sure. And I also see the difference in some some people for sure of when they show up and they can do the individual work outside it's such a it's such a powerful team you've got you've got someone in your individual yeah. corner and then you also have that couples person um alexandra what would you when you think of the work you do with couples what what is the top thing do you think that you teach mm. or want people to learn when they're working with you in couples you mentioned earlier and you write about it in chapter five, um, which is why I, I pulled it out for our conversation because I just <laughs> love it so much. In chapter five, you propose an exercise that to me is just the heart of couples therapy, which is when your partner is upset, can you practice seeing them as having a separate experience from you? 
that I feel like is what everything goes back to. It's 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 moving from that myopic view of this is the story of what happened. This is what happened to a wider sense of I experienced A, my partner experienced B. That is fascinating more than it is threatening. And it is in toggling between my view and your view, my intent and the impact it had on you, your intent and the impact it had on me. Like that's the heart of it is just like helping people be able to sit with a little bit of a thicker, more rich and nuanced story of what's happening than that knee jerk go to, you did that thing. Why would you do that thing? You know, so that exercise that you have people work on when your partner's upset, can you practice seeing them as having a separate experience from you is so vital. Why was that? What, tell me what that was that. Does that kind of strike to the heart of the whole darn thing for you as well? Oh yeah. I, I mean that I use this analogy in therapy and it's one of my go-tos and it really resonates with people. So we have this beautiful footbridge. I spent my PhD crossing it every day back and forth. And <laughs> on one side, you are standing in the old downtown part, the little neighborhood. And from that side of the bridge, you're looking at the university. And so then you cross over the footbridge over the, the Rideau Canal. And then when you stand on the other side of the bridge, you're looking at the old neighborhood. And at the at the heart of it, what I, would, I invite couples to do, partners to do, is can you imagine leaving your view and your perspective on, on your side and cross the bridge? I know that's so hard to cross that bridge. But I want you to go on that other side and to hang out with your partner in their thoughts and feelings. Not that you are responsible for them or you have to take them on or you have to heal all of, all of that, but just to see what's it like for them over there? And then can you then take turns and ask your partner to come to your side and then to see? And, and it's, it's such a powerful analogy, I think, because it reminds us that, again, there's no right or wrong. You are you and I am me and we're both okay. And it's the practice, which for many of us, and you and I could have a whole different conversation around this, but it's what so many of us have come to realize is that we didn't get that growing up. And parents today are, are changing this in the sense that children, very much we grew up with shame-based parenting, with being blamed, with telling us to be good kids, to be the good girl or to be the good boy or to not feel these emotions. And that teaches us to not learn how to differentiate and separate in a healthy way. And I think of, uh, we do consultation in, in the clinic here. And one of the things we often talk about is how the narratives often show up around really feeling, and I don't like to use terms, but what, what, it, what the word that keeps being used is around being a victim, around things happening to you. To you. Mm -hmm. Rather mm -hmm. than seeing, mm -hmm. and the example we used recently was, um, this is just in consultation. We're using this example, but you know, you, you agree to meet your friend at four o'clock and it's four o'clock and they don't show up. It's four ten. you text, they don't respond to you and you wait till four 30, you wait till five and then you decide not to say anything and then you meet again. And then this is something that's happening to you rather than seeing that sense of agency as well for you to say, huh, it's four ten. They haven't shown up. I text them. They're not responding. I don't know what I want to do next, but I'm not going to wait any longer. 
because the other person didn't make you wait a whole hour. You chose to wait an hour and then you chose not to say anything. <sighs> yep. No, I was just thinking we could just keep going in this conversation. <laughs> oh, I know, I know, I know, I know. I think we should leave it right there because it is such a, you, I mean, that is like that example is the gentlest, but most um, clear way of, of reminding us to take responsibility for our part of the dance. You're right. Sitting there for the additional 50 minutes is going to lead to a whole cascade of emotions inside of you. And it is not because they made you wait. But that is so in an an intimate relationship, this stuff happens so quickly and it happens so subtly. And I think there are times when we will do that to ourselves, because now if, if you see me suffering like this, now do you get it? If I suffer like this, now do you get it? And there's ways that we just participate in our own um, misery in ways that we don't have to. So I love, I mean, that's a really effective way of, of inviting people to remember their agency, their power. And even, and, and to the little, you know, the little girl, the little boy that lives inside of you, they didn't have that kind of agency, mm-hmm. but you do now and you get to now. Yeah. The, the yeah. autonomy. It's that you and I talked about that with our, with the work we do, the autonomy and the intimacy and wrestling with the tension between the two. Which is, which again, comes back to what you and I both said is, can I see that you are having a separate experience from me? And how can we then co-create this, this world, this space together? Yeah. Um, I love this. I love that we're simultaneously guests on each other's show. And Mm -hmm. I hope that we will do it again. I really feel like we, um, we have such a, there's such, just such good connection in how we approach the work that we do. And um, you've been such a wonderful conversation partner. Thank you, Alexandra. And I'm so glad that we've been able to sit together and to also celebrate our books coming into the world and other people grabbing them. I'm going to have all of the links in the show notes so that people can grab it. Um, this is one that I think we all need to have on our bookshelves. I know my husband and I will be pulling it out and getting really curious with each other. Um, so thank you. Thank you for your work. Thank you for, for taking all of the time. I just, I know in a different conversation, I want to hear how you figured out how to like chunk these stories and you leave us with cliffhangers and I can see you I'm imagining you on the floor with a bunch of index cards trying to figure out how you're going to tell these stories and weave them together it's just a beautifully done book this is Dr. Tracy's book I didn't sign up for this and we will on reimagining love we'll have links in the show notes to your book to your podcast which is called I'm not your shrink. Yes. Yes. I'm not your shrink. And you're wonderful Instagram. You have such create creative and powerful lessons on your Instagram feed. So Thank we will you. where where can people find you on Instagram? Mm-hmm. Yes. And please say hello. It's at Dr. Tracy D. And my website's drtracyd.com as well. Lots of resources available. Where can people find you, Alexandra? DrAlexandraSolomon.com. Same. Lots of there's links to the <laughs> podcasts and the books and the e-courses and the blogs and all of the all of the things that are so fun to build and, and nurture. Yes, and you have a great quiz on your website as well. So I encourage everybody to go check it out. And thank you. This has been lovely. Thank you. Remember, this podcast is for educational purposes only and does not substitute for the care from a licensed mental health care provider. See you next week. Thank you.
What's up, guys? I'm Gabrielle Stone, host of FML Talk. After being love-bombed, married, and cheated on, trust me, I've got some perspective on love, heartbreak, trauma, and healing. FML Talk has become weekly therapy for my listeners, where I give you a safe space to heal with, of course, a few F-bombs thrown in. Fun girl talk episodes, solo episodes that will guide you on your healing journey, and guests with stories that will leave your jaw on the floor. Grab a cocktail and come hang with me every Wednesday on FML Talk.